0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Regulation in Focus, our regular Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series of short, sharp insights into regulatory issues that matter to you. I'm Kim Everett, a professional support lawyer here in the financial services regulatory team in London, and in this series, I'll be joined by my colleagues across the globe, bringing you incisive views and commentary on regulatory issues and developments. In this episode, we'll be discussing our top tips for dealing with employee misconduct investigations in a regulated context. And I'm delighted to be joined by my London colleagues Howell Jenkins, a partner in our contentious financial services regulatory practice, and Christine Young, a partner specialising in employment law. Christine and Howell are experts in dealing with employee misconduct investigations in a regulated context. They regularly deliver joint seminars on misconduct issues and senior manager's regime implications, as well as advising clients on complex misconduct investigations and departures of employees. As all firms should now be aware, the senior managers and certification regime was extended to nearly all regulated firms on the 9th of December. In this podcast, we won't be talking about implementation, as there's been a lot of focus on that over the past three years. Instead, we'll talk about something which has ongoing relevance. Our top five practical tips for dealing with investigations into employee misconduct and poor behavior in the context of the SMCR framework. Of course, these are relevant not only under SMCR-specific investigations, but also in the wider context of employee misconduct at regulated firms.
1: Thanks, Kim. Yes, and one of the reasons we're seeing so much of this sort of work at the moment is the broad range of matters which can uh, fall within scope of a conduct investigation. I think it's pretty clear that that's gone from being a focus on matters such as integrity, which... uh, many cases have shown will apply both inside and outside the work context, when it's the cases around dodging train fares, etc. And actually now that's broadened out to what the FCA are calling non-financial misconduct. That's the sort of wider focus, including allegations around sexual misconduct and bullying in the workplace. Um, Many of those cases are the ones which are keeping Christine and, and me busy at the moment.
0: Okay, so highly relevant in today's context. So let's start with top tip number one, plan thoughtfully before taking action.
1: That's right, yes. So it it sounds easier said than done, but actually it is really worth with these sorts of investigations, just pausing briefly before rushing headlong into the investigation stage, just to make sure you've thought through the implications of what you're doing and, and how you're going to do it. Now some of that planning can be done in advance before an issue arises ideally, um, but even if you're caught on the hop, um, it's it's worth resisting that temptation to rush in and, and get investigating uh, when an issue has emerged um, and taking a bit of time to uh, be careful and thoughtful about that. Um, particularly, you need to think about maintaining the confidentiality of the process um, and you need to consider issues such as whether the person under investigation needs to be suspended. I think it's worth noting that there's going to be probably competing concerns and views about what you need to do in the context of an individual investigation. Uh, You will need to uh, get on and investigate that from the perspective of the line of business that's involved, but there may also be regulators taking steps to investigate and sometimes even police investigations. Those competing concerns will put limitations and parameters about what you can do and what you ought to be doing and importantly when you can be doing it. There's often pressure to think immediately about making a regulatory notification and that needs to be balanced with going so early that you haven't actually worked out what it is that you would be saying and without being clear about what else it is that you want to be doing and looking at. Also the questions around scope and the end results will set the tone for what follows in the rest of the investigation. If the regulators, and certainly if the police are involved, you will have to be careful about who you can speak to and when you can speak to them. Increasingly, both of those parties will set limitations and want to go first in the timing of interviews and will prevent firms from speaking to suspects and potentially even witnesses. Other issues that can crop up include needing to consider whether the people under investigation want or need separate legal representation and taking the time to ensure that that's set up appropriately. We're certainly seeing that more and more now with the potential impact that uh, regulatory references and these sorts of investigations can have on people's careers on an ongoing basis. And on the subject of privilege, given the state of legal advice privilege, It's very unlikely that carrying out an interview of a subject of an investigation will be covered by privilege, even if that's now run by an external law firm. However, I think there's still merit in having lawyers involved for their skills in conducting interview, dealing with evidence, and also dealing then with the end results, the consequences of the investigation. It's worth having lawyers involved to be able to cloak draft reports with privilege, even if ultimately those have to be disclosed to the regulators or other relevant parties. The other thing to note finally in the SMCR context is to look at not just the person who is alleged to have undertaken uh, misconduct or been involved in misconduct, but also to consider the role of the senior manager responsible for that area. They may need to be investigated for having uh, taken or failed to take reasonable steps to prevent a breach in their area and we do often now see regulators ask why a senior manager wasn't also investigated. It also obviously has wider implications for a firm's systems and controls.
2: One of the other um, first questions that we are often asked, which is quite tricky from an employment perspective, is about suspension. Do you suspend the alleged perpetrator or not, and at what point? Um, From an employment perspective, suspension is no longer considered to be a neutral act. In other words, it could be considered to be a disciplinary sanction in and of itself. Um, so that, that gives pause for thought as to whether you should uh, go forward with a suspension. And I know, um, Howell, it has a regulatory context as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so one of the areas actually where regulatory law chimes with employment law is in this context because um, suspension is classified as being a disciplinary action under section 64C of FISMA.
2: So, essentially, what that means is you need to think about whether or not you want to suspend um, and what the consequences of that will be. Um, so, <clears throat> again, from the employment context, the issue is whether or not you're predetermining the outcome of the investigation because you are suspending someone at the outset, um, and whether or not this amounts to a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence, Um this is particularly relevant if the individual's remuneration is affected by it so say for example they're um, on commission and they can't earn commission because they're suspended or because their skills atrophy because they are not able to use those skills whilst they're suspended Um, so it needs to be quite a serious allegation in the first place to contemplate suspension and you need to have a good reason for the suspension which is usually either because it might impede the investigation to have the person still in the office and working or because it might damage the business so you think they might do something um, detrimental to the business by being present so um, ultimately um, if you are going to suspend make sure it's fully paid keep it as short as possible and keep it under review Um, we would normally recommend trying to Get the individual to agree to agreed leave
0: first, rather than having to suspend, and only using suspension as a fallback position if necessary. Okay, Christine. So we've talked about planning thoughtfully for the scope and process of the investigation, and that leads us to top tip number two: make that process manageable. So it's really important that you um, hand uh, on how you handle the investigation.
2: That uh, you firstly need to make sure that you've planned as to what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Um, My first point is scope of investigation. Make sure that you are clear at the outset as to what the investigation is going to cover and what it's not going to cover. So often we see investigations suffer from what I would call scope creep, where they end up covering um, other issues and that can cause issues later on. Make sure you are clear and identify and document at the beginning who is leading the investigation, who's going to make decisions on different things. So there's decisions in respect of disciplinary issues, who may hear an appeal, who may make the assessment of fitness and propriety and who may decide on conduct rule breaches as you will need to bear those people in mind in terms of what information they're getting access to and when they're getting access to it. And also think about um, whether these are the right people in terms of the level of right level of seniority. In terms of um, SMCR in particular, ensure that the relevant senior manager has some involvement as regulators are often asking the question of the senior manager in the business as to what they knew about the, um, the, the investigation and what was going on. The other aspect of this is make sure you've got the right people involved. Um, so Think about the HR team, the legal team and compliance. As they will all be looking at this from slightly different perspectives with different issues in mind but they're all important um, issues and uh, overlapping areas of interest so for example what you might say to the FCA might impact on um, how you might run the process and the HR team will be focused on ensuring the fairness of the process and making sure that statements the FCA are consistent with those. Bear in mind these investigations can take time it's um, time to collect collate the information um, in terms of documents and also to speak to the relevant witnesses. So be careful about time management in terms of what you commit to with the regulator and third parties. As I will mention, make sure that you involve internal and external counsel um, because they can be very useful both from the, the privilege perspective but also because of their experience in conducting investigations like these. Um, particularly if you've got a senior individual in the organisation, sometimes this can result in people who ordinarily would run the investigation being conflicted or it being um, difficult for them as a more junior person to run such an investigation. And then make sure that you are documenting what you are doing. It's really important to know and have documented what was actually decided, who decided it and why, um, so that if there is a challenge at a later date then either because of the FCA or because of the individual concerned or indeed the alleged victim, that you actually have something there and also in case of any press
0: interest at a later date. So we've talked about planning thoughtfully when you're thinking about scope and we've just talked about managing the process very well. How about outcomes? What do we do? So I think it's useful to have a checklist of actions. And the the reason for that is
2: there's a lot of things that overlap here where you have to make sure that you are being consistent. And I mean consistent vis-a-vis other people that you have dealt with in the same way in the past, but also consistency as regards these different outcomes. So take, for example, someone's committed gross misconduct and is being summarily dismissed, then you need to think about what's going to be said in the regulatory reference. Is it going to be a clean regulatory reference? What are you going to um, do with their uh, deferred compensation? Are you going to treat them as a, a good lever, as the term is known? And and would that actually be consistent with a gross misconduct decision? Um, bear in mind you are going to be potentially tested on this by the FCA as well as the individual and anyone else who becomes aware of it or indeed the press. So being inconsistent as regard these decisions could come back to cause a problem for the organisation in the future. Regulatory references in particular can be a real concern for the individuals who are under investigation um, and indeed are often form part of um, negotiations and settlement discussions. Uh, so it's important that you are as an organisation, clear on what you are going to say in those references, and what assessment is going to be made on fitness and propriety, and also whether or not you need to make any statements about conduct rule breaches. Settlement agreements usually cover off this um, this issue. Indeed, as an individual departing, there are two things they usually focus on: money and reputation. And regulatory references go to the go most definitely to the latter. But it's very important to bear in mind that the firms cannot have their hands tied as to regards what they include in a regulatory reference. So they have to ensure they retain flexibility in the settlement agreement to make changes to that regulatory reference. We've seen examples um, where the FCA has challenged the content of regulatory references. And if there is not sufficient flexibility, that can cause problems for the regulated firm. Finally, the deferred compensation or deferred remuneration. The FCA doesn't like the word good lever." we understand, um, but the the concept is is a recognised one, which is the person managing to retain their deferred consideration, uh, the compensation, rather than their um, losing it. And again, we just need to make sure that there are appropriate justifications for doing that.
1: And actually, that's why having a checklist at the outset can be very useful, because if you know from the outset you've got a regulatory notification to make a reference to draft and decisions to make around remuneration. you can ensure that the decision you've made at the outset is is wide enough and caters for each of those consequences consequences and outcomes. We've definitely seen in the past instances where things have gone to the regulator and they have taken a different view as to what matters need to be referred to in one or more of those uh, outputs. And firms can avoid that at the beginning if they've thought about them from the outset, but also left themselves enough room in negotiation to be able to uh, make changes as appropriate. Generally speaking, I would say that the FCA's threshold on when things need to be notified, particularly in references, is lower than you might think and as much as you can look at the rules around the six year rule for example for um, serious misconduct not needing to be included in the reference, the regulator has made very clear that what they see is important is the spirit of the rules rather than the detailed provisions and will more often err on the side of inclusion rather than exclusion.
0: Hal, we've just been talking about regulatory notifications as an outcome of misconduct investigations, so this leads us on to our top tip number four, develop a communications strategy. Here we mean communications not only with the regulators we've just discussed, but also internally, communications with the media, PR, and so on. And consistency of messaging here is key.
1: Absolutely. I think the start point here is for firms to think about the overarching obligations they have under principle 11 from the FCA perspective and fundamental Rule 7 from a PRA perspective which means they have to give information to the regulators which they would reasonably expect to be made aware of. In the context of conduct investigations, I think both regulators have made very clear that this is exactly the sort of information that they are interested in. And when issues go to fitness and propriety or particular conduct rule breaches, then it's very clear Then there are specific rules requiring notifications to be made. But when you're at the very beginning of uh, an investigation and you don't necessarily know what the outcome is, there's always a difficult balancing act between making the FCA and PRA aware of something at the outset where that might not necessarily hit those particular specific thresholds. I think one thing that can make that decision easier is if the matter is public and if the press are interested in it. You certainly don't want the regulators finding out about something by reading the papers and even if it wouldn't hit the specific thresholds I would recommend getting in touch with the regulators before that happens to make them aware that there's a potential issue even if you're as yet uncertain where it might go to. As well as the notifications that bite at the firm's level you also have to think about specific notification thresholds in relation to individuals. There are different types of obligations depending on whether we're dealing with a senior manager, a certified person or a normal conduct rule staff. Bear in mind as well that the individuals that you're dealing with will probably have an interest which is the opposite way round to the firms. The firms may want to be cautious and make information clear to the regulators on a prudent basis, whereas the individual will have an interest in as little being said to the regulators as possible and with firms only dealing with the bare minimum under their regulatory obligations. That's not always clear, particularly where there's an inherent judgement call to be made as to what is and isn't relevant. On that, as I mentioned at the beginning, the FCA's scope of issues that they're interested in has got wider and wider in recent years We've seen lots of financial and non-financial misconduct, which includes bullying, harassment and the Me Too movement, etc. And the regulators have made clear that they do not like that kind of behaviour and want firms to be proactive in both reporting it and taking steps to eliminate it from financial services. I think everyone would agree that the worst sorts of behaviour there are things that should not be allowed and should not be allowed to continue uh, in other firms with the rolling bad apples. But making a bigger topic around non-financial misconduct doesn't help firms deal with the very real issues around evidence and working out whether alleged beh- misbehaviour has in fact occurred um, and dealing with a, a mere allegation and Putting that into a regulatory reference requires a very difficult balance to be struck.
0: So finally, to round off our top tips, it's number five. Ensure a clear record of actions taken and of communications with the regulator.
1: I think this is very important, not least because anything that you say to the regulators um, and any other decisions that you make, you will be tied to. And it may be that you have an immediate interaction with the regulator about what you've said and done but it may be that that doesn't come around until several months or even years after the event. If you don't have a clear explanation and rationale for the steps that you've taken, I think you're going to be in much greater difficulties later on in trying to justify and explain what you've done.
2: I would agree with that. It's really important, particularly in the context of a regulated environment, to make sure that you've noted down your decisions and exactly what you've told the FCA and also what they have said in response, in case in the future you are challenged about what was said um, and and what the next steps were. And in that context,
1: remember that a a regulatory reference doesn't need to be given until it's requested, that could be many years later again, and there may be follow-up questions and if you haven't got a clear record of what you did at the outset and the scope and findings of your investigation, you're very unlikely to be able to capture that accurately in a reference further down
2: the track. And indeed what was said to the individual at the time so that you have a record
0: of what was put to them and their response. So that's our top five tips for misconduct investigations. Number one, plan thoughtfully before starting. Number two, make the process manageable. Number three, create a checklist of actions for your outcomes. Number four, develop a communication strategy, and number five, ensure a clear record. So we'd encourage you to get in touch with Howell or Christine or any of our regulatory or employment experts to discuss any of these issues further. Thanks to Howell and Christine for joining me today, and thanks to Tom, our producer extraordinaire. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation in Focus in early 2020. So thanks for listening, have a very happy holiday season, and bye for now.